If you're a parent or a parent-to-be, you may have imagined what your unborn child will be like. And I think it's fair to say that we all imagine our version of the perfect child. Well, Sydney and Jacqueline Blackwell did just that when their son, Brian, was born. And to all intents and purposes, to the outside world, he was the perfect son. Until he wasn't. The admired, clevered, athletic and ambitious student would make a decision that would change the course of the Blackwell family's life forever. Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. Brian Blackwell was born in 1986. His dad, Sydney, was an accountant and his mum, Jacqueline, was an antiques dealer. They had Brian uh, quite a bit later in life than the average parent, so had well established themselves in their careers and lived in the affluent village of Melling, Merseyside, which is a northern suburb of Liverpool here in England. Again, being older, Sydney was 54 and Jacqueline 43, they probably realised that Brian would be their only child together and were described as overindulgent as well as excessively overprotective and controlling even the tiniest aspects of Brian's life throughout his childhood. Now, I say only child together. Sydney had actually previously been married and had two grown children from that marriage. Now, yes, a lot of this perfect son reputation, as it were, was largely due to his privilege. His parents' wealth meant that Brian was lucky enough to attend Liverpool College, which was a fee-paying private school. But to be fair, Brian wasn't just privileged. He was also gifted. He was so clever that his friends and family called him Brains. So the perfect play on the letters in his name, but also because it was true. His goal once he finished his A-levels was to go to Nottingham University and study medicine. Except he would never make it to university. There was a little chink in Brian's perfect suit of armour. Lying. Brian was a world-class liar. Now, like most kids, his lies had started off small and inconsequential, and it was usually things like bragging about grades he hadn't gotten or achievements that he hadn't actually achieved. And one of these fake achievements was about his ability to play tennis. Now, don't get me wrong, he was a good player, a really good player, but he wasn't a great player, and he certainly wasn't at professional level except that wasn't good enough for Brian. So it's now 2004, Brian is 17, and the future is looking good. He's finishing up his A-levels and dating a fellow student called Amal, the daughter of two doctors who originated from Jordan. And he got on absolutely amazingly with her family, especially as he had the same aspirations as her mum and dad. Except, in his mind, those aspirations weren't enough to impress Amal or her family, or anyone else in his orbit as far as he was concerned. So he began telling them that he was a professional tennis player. And not only a professional tennis player, but one that had been chosen to play at the next French Open. Whether this is naivety, stupidity, or narcissism, this is just wild to me. Like, how on earth do you think you can tell a lie that big and expect it to never come out? 
I mean, he could have scaled that lie down and said that he was being approached by tennis coaches wanting him to go pro and that if he did, he it could lead to something like the French Open. But no, he was a go big or go home type of liar. So much so that he told Amal and her family that he had been ranked number one in various magazines. And to show the receipts, as it were, he doctored some magazines to show his name at the top of each list. Now that is dedication to a lie. I'll give him that. And maybe I'm just way too cynical and jaded. Actually, scrap that. I am way too cynical and jaded. But I would have been straight on Google checking this out. I'd like to think that at 17 or 18, I just wouldn't have been taking the word of some random boy at school I was dating. But any hoops, there we have it. That's what he was telling her, and evidently they were believing it. So, did he stop there? Oh, if only. Apparently, being asked to play at the French Open wasn't enough, because he then tells them that Nike have approached him with a £50,000 sponsorship deal. Again, he figures he better have the receipts to back this up. So he forges what I can only assume looked like a pretty legit contract. Because Amal and her family believe that basically Amal is dating the next, I don't know, Tim Henman or something. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, dating Mole was actually a bit of a middle finger to his parents, as they preferred him to hang around with adults rather than people his own age. They just felt it was better for him intellectually, he was less likely to get into trouble, etc. All that stuff. And ironically, they preferred him to spend time at the tennis club that they belonged to. But along with the lying, Brian was starting to rebel. Now, I mentioned that he wanted to go to Nottingham University, but his parents wanted him to attend a more prestigious university, which in their opinion was in Edinburgh. So he did apply to both, and based on his predicted A's in maths, biology, chemistry and science, he was accepted. And now it's alleged that his parents actually contacted Edinburgh to accept on his behalf. But don't quote me on that, that's just kind of, I read that in a couple of sources, but I couldn't back it up too much. 
So Brian is now in deep with his tennis-based lies. Amal and her family totally believing that he is this some high flyer on his way to incredible things. But words are cheap, and I guess he figured if he didn't start backing it up with something more tangible, he might lose her. So what did he do? (laughs) He decides to apply for 13 credit cards in his dad's name. He then made an appointment with the bank to try and get a cash advance, again using the lie that he was a professional tennis player and that he needed the money to be able to play in the French Open later that summer. He wrote on his application form that he'd be able to repay the loan with his made-up tennis salary of £45,000 a year. Now, I know this was like 20 years ago, but I'm pretty sure tennis players are earning way more than that, but that's what he put anyway. So while he's waiting for the bank to approve his loans, he asks Amal to be his manager. She agrees and to wow her, I guess, he says he'll pay her up front, confidently writing out a cheque for £39,000. Shocker, the cheque bounces. Of course it bounces. He hasn't got a penny to his name and there's no way the bank are going to approve a loan because when they do the background checks, it's all going to reveal that it's a lie. But I guess we don't all live in the same Delulu world of Brian. So he spins some rubbish to Amal about why the cheque bounced, and to make it up to her with a grand gesture, he presents her with a brand new car. And as a 17-year-old girl, if a boy is showering you with gifts, along with blindly being in love, thinking you're going to be the partner of the next huge celebrity, you're not really going to be questioning much, I guess. Us, on the other hand, are thinking, where the heck did he get the money? If a £39,000 cheque just bounced, how has he gone out and managed to buy a car for a mole? Well, his parents had set up a savings bond intended for him to use solely for the four years of university. But he had managed to access that account and withdraw £9,000, which is what he used to buy a mole's car. So by this time, school has finished up, which has given Brian way more time to find ways of accessing his parents' money. Except living in La La Land obviously means you don't realise that there's absolutely no way they are not going to find out. And find out they do. When a cheque bounces, you get a letter from the bank. So I don't know if you've ever had one, hopefully not, but if you do, that's what happens. So as you can imagine, to Jacqueline's surprise, she finds out she's supposedly written a bad cheque. Then, digging further, finds out that Brian has also withdrawn the £9,000 and she is furious. Like I said, they don't even like the fact that he is dating Amal, let alone lavishing expensive gifts on her. So the first thing that she does is contact the bank and blacklist him from being able to authorise any transaction without either her or Sydney present. The two of them, Sydney and Jacqueline, are realising that their indulging Brian is seriously backfiring and they've told him that he's gone too far. The three of them argue, but his parents put their foot down. On the 25th of July 2004, Brian and his dad head to the tennis club as usual. And I'd imagine Sydney probably believed that his perfect son, as it were, had tried to assert his dominance, realised it was a no-go and would now revert back to being his golden child. Except narcissists, now just quickly hold on to that thought, we'll get back to that word in a bit, don't take it laying down when things don't go their way. And a lot of the time, it doesn't usually end well. Which, sadly for 70-year-old Sydney and 60-year-old Jacqueline, it wouldn't. 
What Sydney didn't know was that Brian had booked two first-class tickets to New York and a trip of a lifetime for him and Amal travelling around the States, leaving the very next day. Now, while he was upstairs packing, Sydney and Jacqueline were downstairs trying to figure out what to do about Brian's lying and hoping that he'd listen to them. I'm guessing, though, with all the money that had been taken, they were probably combing through their accounts just to make sure that they'd accounted for it all, which is when they find the charges for this lavish upcoming trip. Again, they confronted Brian, but this time there was no arguing back from him. Instead, he grabbed a kitchen carving knife and a claw hammer and attacked his dad in what only can be described as a frenzied attack. As well as whacking Sydney around the head with the hammer, Brian stabbed him repeatedly in the chest. As you can imagine, Jacqueline's screams and attempts to stop her son's attack on his dad got her nowhere fast. He subdued her by whacking her on the head with the claw hammer too. And then once he was finished with Sydney, he also began stabbing his mum repeatedly. Roughly 30 stab wounds to Sydney and 20 on Jacqueline. Brian then stepped over both Sydney and Jacqueline's bodies and left them to rot in pools of their own blood. He went back upstairs, took a shower, finished packing and then went over to Amol's house to spend the night as if nothing at all had happened before their flight the following morning. Amol, who was completely unaware of the violent crime that Brian had just committed, took her seat in first class next to Brian, more than likely pinching herself with this incredible life that she is about to embark on. And this wasn't just a romantic weekend getaway to New York. The two teenagers kicked off their trip at the Plaza Hotel near Central Park, staying for three nights in the presidential suite, costing just over £2,000. Brian and Amal then continued their spending spree as they travelled around the US. They visited Miami, San Francisco and even managed to squeeze in a trip to Barbados before returning back to New York again. The entire trip cost £30,000, all put on Sydney's credit cards. The smiles on their faces in photos taken from this whirlwind trip never once showed signs that Brian knew that his parents were still laying dead in the family home. But also, I guess he didn't even know what was going on at home. I mean, for all he knew that they could have been found and he had no idea what was waiting for him when he got off that plane. But obviously none of that factored in his mind. So they got back to Liverpool in mid-August and Brian, true to his lying self, asked if he could stay at a mole's house for the next couple of weeks, saying that he was locked out of his parents' house because they were on holiday in Spain. The week after they got back, they both received their A-level results, Brian getting those A's in all four of those subjects, maths, chemistry, biology and Spanish. And as you can imagine, he was immediately accepted into university. So he let Nottingham know that he would be coming and declined the offer from Edinburgh. For the rest of the summer, Brian continued to stay at Amal's house, saying that his parents were still on their trip. So you may be thinking, hang on a second, where are Jacqueline and Sydney? Well, they're still exactly where Brian left them. He hasn't returned to the house since that fateful argument back in July. And it's not until September the 5th, which is six weeks after they were killed, that police discover Jacqueline and Sydney's decomposing bodies after a neighbour called to report a strong, unusual odour coming from the property. 
They'd attempted to post a letter through the door and were met with one of the worst smells of their lives. Now, the injuries from the attacks were so severe that actually investigators initially thought they were gunshot wounds. And with no signs for break-in, nothing missing, etc., Brian, obviously, is the prime suspect. So he's immediately taken into custody for questioning, where, obviously, he vehemently denies having any knowledge of his parents' death and saying that he was in New York at the time of their deaths. Now, he was actually quoted as saying, I think, because obviously I've been thinking about it over in my head, and I'm obviously here because the police suspect me of doing this, I've been asked what I consider to be slightly irrelevant questions. And the main topic, the sole reason why I'm here, is to question whether I've done it or not. You say this happened quite a few weeks before, and I believe this rules me out of the question of whether or not I have done it. I'm obviously very happy to talk to the police, and I want you to get to the bottom of it, because this happened to my parents. But obviously, I believe I should be dealt with more of as a witness than a suspect. I think I've proven that I was not here when it happened, and obviously, if I was not here to do it, then I should not be held. End quote. Wow. (laughs) Just wow. They are definitely the words of someone used to being able to talk their way out of any situation. The next day, though, a sobbing Brian changes his story and confesses, in inverted commas, that yes, he killed them, but he did so in an act of self-defence. According to him, he was holding a claw hammer as he was about to hang a picture up on the wall, when suddenly his father stood up to hit him during a verbal argument, because he said, again, they were arguing about him dating Amal and going to Nottingham University and all of the, the normal arguments, he said. Slight problem with that story, though. Sydney had been hit on the back of the head while sitting down, which conflicts Brian's claim of self-defence that his dad got up to hit him. Afterwards, according to Brian, his mum, hearing the commotion, came in from the kitchen, still holding a kitchen knife that she was in the middle of using. He said, though, that she began to hold the knife up over her head in a stabbing motion, so he felt he had no choice but to attack her with the hammer too. He said that he used both a claw hammer and a knife, but that he'd used the soft part of the hammer. And what he means by that is the flat part that the actual hammer part is. So I don't even really know why he needed to say that, but I guess he thought it made it sound better. But no, it doesn't, Brian. It really doesn't. He then goes on to say that he'd never stabbed anyone before and it wasn't how he thought it would be. He said that it didn't even feel like the knife was going in. But 50 stab wounds total says otherwise. He also admitted to using his dad's credit card to fund his and Amal's trip, including hundreds of dollars spent on roses for Amal everywhere they went. Brian was formally charged with two counts of murder and was remanded in custody without bail until trial. But don't get comfy, because there's two more twists and turns to come. Brian's lawyers immediately request for him to be mentally evaluated, which he is, and three psychologists and two psychiatrists all come back with a diagnosis of NPD, which is Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Now, the word narcissist is thrown around so much these days, you only need to scroll on TikTok for a few minutes before stumbling on either a video exposing an alleged narcissist or people arguing in the comments and calling each other a narcissist. But a lot of people don't actually know what the official diagnosis is. 
The National Library of Medicine defines NPD as this. A pattern of grandiosity, a need for admiration, a lack of empathy, beginning by early adulthood. And the patient must be displaying at least five of the following. One, a sense of self-importance, for example, exaggerates achievements, expects to be recognised as superior without actually completing the achievements. Number two, is preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, brilliance, beauty or perfect love. Number three, believes that they are special and can only be understood by or should only associate with other special people. Number four, requires excessive admiration. Five, has a sense of entitlement, such as an unreasonable expectation of favourable treatment or compliance with his or her expectations. Six, is exploitive and takes advantage of others to achieve their own ends. Seven, lacks empathy and is unwilling to identify with the needs of others. Eight, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of them. And nine, shows arrogance, haughty behaviours and attitudes. So his lawyers run with this diagnosis and their entire defence being that this horrific crime was only committed as a result of Brian's NPD. And they were pretty successful. They actually managed to have Brian's double murder charges dropped to the lesser charge of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, which he did plead guilty to. On June 29th, 2005, at Liverpool Crown Court, Brian Blackwell was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 12 years. The Guardian newspaper reported that the judge stated that after those 12 years, he could be eligible for parole after that time if psychologists agreed that he was fit for release. But he added, quote, present evidence suggests that that conclusion is unlikely ever to be reached, end quote. So basically, he was saying that he couldn't see Brian ever being released from prison. Yeah, about that. Once again, hold that thought, okay? At his sentencing hearing, Brian stood up in the dock and read out the following. For every moment of every day, I wish I could turn back the hands of time. I eternally long to be a little boy again at a time when everyone really loved each other and when we could have a happy time and be a family once more. I miss them more than anything in the world. The guilt will punish me and haunt me for 24 hours a day for the rest of my life. He was then taken away to Swinfen Hall Young Offenders Institute in Staffordshire. Two years later, though, he was actually back in court on other charges that had been laid against him, which was the fraud element. And in February 2007, he was ordered to repay nearly £37,000. He didn't argue the claim and was taken straight back to the Young Offenders Institution. Allegedly, in letters to a female friend, he described himself as a nice guy. He claimed that while being in prison for those last couple of years, he had found God and that he had decided that he wanted to study for a law degree and was trying to get it organised. He wrote, It's so tedious. It takes so long to get things done when you can only communicate by mail. I'm not sure if I could practice as a solicitor when I'd get out or whether I'd get employed, but it's something I really want to do. You get a very different perspective of crime when you've been to jail and it interests me a great deal. He also went on in the letter to brag about how his cell was actually bigger than his old bedroom and that he even had an ensuite because there was a toilet and a sink in his room. So this doesn't really sound like somebody that's particularly mourning the loss of his parents in an act that he felt he had no control over, but 
I'll leave that with you. And the other thing that's interesting to note is the fact that he's talking about being employed and either working as a solicitor, etc., just shows the level of confidence that he had that he would be able to be released. Now, why? Why was he so confident with that? Because they said, or the judge said, that a psychologist or a psychiatrist would have to deem him fit mentally. And they'd already agreed that he had NPD. And I don't know, I could be wrong, but I'm not sure NPD is something that you necessarily recover from. I don't know if you can be rehabilitated from being a narcissist. I'm not 100% sure. But like I said, that's just kind of my opinion on where I'm at. However, those letters that he sent kind of almost guaranteed that he's coming out in his mind. So yeah, the judge did say it was unlikely that Brian would ever be fit for release. Apparently, Brian was a little bit more in the know of his mental capacities, because in 2016, he went before the parole board and in a shock twist was granted a full release only serving 11 years in prison for the horrific murder of his parents. And today, as far as my research shows, Brian Blackwell is a free man living his life. Thanks for listening. To see today's case photos, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. And if you're enjoying being here, please leave a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.